We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, hello, listeners, once again. Uh, thank you for joining me as we're going to continue going through Philippians and culminating it with chapter 4 today. I hope you guys are doing well in the Lord. I hope that, um, as Paul oftentimes talked about, grace be with you. Um, I hope that God's grace is um, empowering you to live the, the life that God has commissioned us to live as soldiers on His mission um, in this world for the glory of heaven. So uh, if you have not listened to chapters 1, 2, or 3, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to those before we finish this up in chapter 4. Um, if you are just planning on listening to this one and then going back, I would highly encourage that as well. Um, you know, on the heels of chapter 3, I think it's important on verse 1 even of chapter 4 that we understand what chapter 3 was talking about. And so as I emphatically was stating over and over redundantly even in our study over chapter 3 is keep your position. Uh, the position of being in Christ. As Corinthians talks about, all the promises, all the yeses, the amens of God, they find their yes and their amen in Christ. And so it's vital about our position in Christ of being in Him. And I think after all the warnings, all the stuff that Paul gave in chapter 3, which again, this is why I really encourage you to maybe even stop this one. Go listen to chapter 3 before you listen to this one. All the things that Paul talked about. Here's how he starts chapter 4 in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved. Now that will make a lot more sense if you go back and listen to it because Paul's urge is for them. These are brothers. These are part of the Adelphos, which is the the body of Christ who have the same parental womb. says, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown. These are terminology for the beloved, the church. These are saints who are in Christ and he's telling them, stand firm in the Lord. The word is, for stand firm is, is stecco. It means persevere, to be stationary. Do not move from your citizenship and your focus. Going back into verse 20. He says, do not move from your position of Jesus Christ. Stand firm in it. Persevere through it. Because he knows the promises that are in the end there for those who do. I think that's why God even says, well done my good and faithful servant. He doesn't say, well done, my good and faithful son or brother. Or he doesn't say, well done, my, my good um, servant who once had faith. It's the one who endured in faith to the end as a servant unto the master. He says, you get to come in. And going on, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntec to agree in the Lord. Notice the in the Lord. Not just to agree to disagree. Not just to say, oh, okay, well, let's just talk this out and we'll come to a conclusion on it. He says, no, in the Lord. Because we aren't supposed to have harmony outside of truth. 
We're supposed to have harmony in it. So he says, I entreat them. I want you to agree. Work it out. Whatever your difference is. Whatever your the, 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 you know, doctrinal stance or a circumstantial type thing. Whatever's happening, go to the elders. Go to somebody who has some knowledge. If you can't do it yourself, figure it out and agree in the Lord. This goes even into 1 Corinthians was chapter 1. Where Paul is saying the exact same thing to the church in Corinth. He says, I don't want there to be any divisions. I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm invoking the name, the authority of Jesus. That as a church, you don't need to have divisions. You need to be of one mind and of one heart. Figure it out. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You know, I was having a conversation in our men's study on Tuesday night where we were talking about how in Revelation 20, 21, it talks about how there's going to be books that are opened and all people will be judged according to these books of what was written in it. And then it says that the book of life will be opened up. And if your name is in that book of life, then you get in. You need to make sure that your name is in that book of life on the last day. Because you might give an account for what you do in the body, whether good or evil, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. You might be judged according to what's written in the books. And there's a discrepancy as to maybe what those books are. I have my thoughts towards it, and other people have their thoughts, I'm sure. But there's a standard of what we're supposed to live by that is going to judge us. It is going to give, uh, we will give an account before that standard of what we are to live by and how we are supposed to live, whether good or evil, as Romans 14.12 or 2 Corinthians 5.10 talk on. We, as Christians, will give an account. And there will be a standard that we will give an account before. And then the book of life will be opened up. And if our name is in that book of life, which is essentially being in the position of Jesus Christ, he says, then you get in. If it's not, you don't. And Paul's telling these women, he says, look, y'all need to agree. Y'all need to work it out. All these people who are my fellow workers for the gospel, they're my companions, my fellow soldiers. Come on, guys. Let's get on the same page and let's be unified, as he talked about in Philippians chapter 1, where he says, um, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, come on, we can do so much more power together when we're in harmony and truth than if we're separated. So let's agree. Let's do it. He goes on, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't say sometimes. <laughs> now, I, I, because I'm teaching this does not mean that I have this figured out 100% and that I um, apply this 100% in my life without fail. There have been many times in my life where circumstances have come into my life. Things have been hard. Things have been trying and challenging. And people have been stabbing me in the back. People have turned their back on me. People have you know, not held up their end. People have lied to me. People have slandered and maliciously accused me. They've done all kinds of things for the sake of Christ and for my stance on truth. Been all kinds of things. And I haven't always rejoiced. This is a hard one. But just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's not possible. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So it was in, in Luke, um, I think it's in chapter 6, 20 through 26, where he talks about it, where he says, you know, how people treated the false prophets. They loved them, they treated them as their own, whatnot. But the prophets, the ones who spoke truth, the ones who had the hard message for the people of God. Because you notice, prophets typically, you know, there's times where it was like Jonah to Nineveh. They didn't go to the people who were not of God. Prophets typically, almost always, unequivocally went 
to the people of God. And they had hard words. They had hard messages to have to give to them. And the people didn't often receive it. In fact, they hated them for speaking the truth. And it says, they reviled them, they slandered them, they spurned them as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Prophets typically are not welcomed. Because their message is a hard one. But he says that whenever they do these things to you, he says, leap for joy. Isn't that interesting? He says, I want you to leap for joy whenever things are challenging in your life. A teacher I very highly respect, his name is Eric Luddy. And uh, I'd encourage you to look him up. Eric, L-U-D-Y. Eric Luddy has a ministry out of Colorado, in Windsor, Colorado. Um, Highly, highly respect him. Really um, am appreciative of his teaching because it's really helped me to kind of get a fuller understanding and clarity of the word in in many instances. But he was talking about how one time life was challenging. Life was, was trying. And things were coming against the ministry and him personally and the people were attacking him and, and various stuff. And he said, all of a sudden, God brought this verse to mind about leap for joy. And so he, he physically did. He, he like yelled out like for a joyous yell and he leaped up in the air and he said, I, I can't explain it. Something happened in me where that challenge, that trying time that I had, something took place in me where it's like all of a sudden it was like, I can do this. And it was, it was not gone, but it was bearable and manageable. As to before he did it, it wasn't. And, and, and here was his point. He said, putting yourself in obedience to the word of God, no matter what it looks like or, or, or how foolish it might seem, how, how silly it might make you seem. He said, grace abounds when you do. And it's not something of, of necessarily your own doing. It's just simply when you yoke yourself to obeying the word. That then God gives you what you need to fulfill His will in your life and to the glory of Jesus Christ. So while it's a difficult one, rejoicing always, no matter what comes your way, no matter what happens, we have reason to rejoice. We just have to find it. And sometimes we have to sacrifice um, in that moment into obedience unto the Lord. And then God will give us the grace. Remember what it talks about in first. Peter chapter 5, where he talks about he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And then he goes on, therefore humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God. And then he goes on and he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen you to the praise of his glory. Sometimes you're going to have to suffer for a little bit in the midst of it. And when you yoke yourself into obedience and you persevere in that, then all of a sudden God himself is the one who's going to come and he'll strengthen you and he'll restore you and he'll confirm you. That's a big praise. He says again, I'll say rejoice, let your reasonableness, which is a Greek word, empirikos, it means to a mild or gentle, patient, that, that patient uh, demeanor. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. I love that. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. It makes me think of the disciples whenever they were in the boat and the storm came and they thought they were all going to die. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat. And they, they think they're all going to die. So finally, when they had done everything that they could, anxious toil, if you will, they go down to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we're all going to die. And you're sleeping here. And Jesus wakes up and he walks out to the boat, to the top deck. And he's just like, be still. And the storm stopped at his word. 
See, oftentimes I think we do ourselves a disservice because we, we go about our anxious toil, we worry, and we have anxiety, and we stress out about stuff, and we do all these things, and all we have to do is really go to Jesus because He's at hand. You might not see Him on that top deck with you, but He's there. Same way as whenever... I think he was training the disciples when he stayed back. At, I think it was at Gennesaret and he stayed back and he was up on top of the mountain praying and he was watching them the whole time. And they started struggling like a mile or two off the shore. They started struggling out in the storm and, and they were having trouble. And then he, he comes to them and he appears to them on the water. It's the famous scene of, of Peter walking on the water. But he was watching them. He knew what was going on. He just needed them to cry out to him. Not to cry because of the storm. And I think in our lives we would do well to take heed to that. To know that He's there. He is with us. And all we got to do is know that He's at hand. And we don't have to be anxious about anything. Finances, anything. I know that there's opportunities to be anxious. There will always be opportunities to be anxious. But Jesus is at hand. Trust Him. Grab hold of His hand. And He'll lead you through it. And you don't have to have anxiety and stress. This isn't a leading you through it in the midst of your anxiousness or your stress. This is leading you through it so you don't have anxiety or stress. That's why He says, do not be anxious about anything. That's a command. And God will help you fulfill that through the grace that He gives to you at His throne of grace. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4, 2, we'll get to it you know, soon when we go through Colossians. But he says, um, let me turn to it real quick so I don't mess it up. It's just a few pages over. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And it's one of my favorite verses for the power of prayer. Because he says, I want you to continue steadfastly in prayer. You might not see the result the first time you pray. You might not see it the second time. Just like Elijah praying for rain, right? Seven times he prays, sends his servant. He prays, sends his servant up to the seventh time. And the seventh time, servant comes back and he says, I see a cloud like the size of a man's hand off in the distance. He says, that's the answer. Let's go. He didn't see the result of the praying. He didn't, it didn't start raining. He just saw the sign that God had responded and then he took it by faith and he then said, God's going to answer. Continue steadfastly in praying, being watchful in it. Know that God's going to answer because he has promised to answer anything according to his will. If you are praying from a place of humility, if you're praying from a place that is not of your will but his will be done, if you're praying from a place of faithfulness unto his will and his word, God says, I will do it. I will complete it. And he says, and give thanksgiving. How are you giving thanksgiving before the prayer is even done? That's called faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Have faith in your praying. Thank God for the things that he's going to do. And again, in accordance with his word and will, two things that never go against each other. If you're praying for that new raise at work so that you can get that bigger house, or you're praying for that new car, or you're praying for that, you know, rich bonus check so you can take your family out on a vacation and y'all can go live it up, that's not according to his word or his will. They don't, they're, they're, they're not something that is distinct from one or the other. They are one and the same. He goes on and he says, let your request be made known to God. And I like that because he says your request. Even Jesus offered a request to God, and God said no. 
Did you catch me on that? Jesus says, God, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. And God said, no. Even Jesus. Hebrews 5 says that he was heard because of his reverence. Right? Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the one who had never sinned, the one who, if anyone was righteous, it was him. And God told him no. Just because a prayer is offered unto God does not mean that God is going to say yes. It is a request. I once had a guy tell me that none of Jesus' prayers ever went unanswered. They always um, came to be what he asked. Well, the Garden of Gethsemane would say otherwise. Just because you pray something doesn't mean that it's going to be answered with a yes. Sometimes God is going to say no. And we have to be okay with that. He says, in the peace of God, so if we do these things, the, the if and the then, the conditionality of these things, if we do these things, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, peace, which is opposite of anxiety, it's opposite of stress. He says, if you um, are, are doing these things, rejoicing in the Lord, if you're letting your reasonableness be known to everyone, if, if you're not anxious about things and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, making your request known to God, he says, then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when you share your heart to God, knowing that He hears, He helps guard us from the anxiety and the worry that life will try to bring our way. When you know that God hears you, there's power in that. Brother Yun um, has a, a book called The Heavenly Man. A great book. Um, highly recommend it for uh, encouragement and faith. He was in prison one day. and God had told him specifically previous in his life that he was going to go to the West and he was going to give testimony to the glory of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gets thrown in prison, right? And he's struggling with it. And um, questioning, did he hear God right? Questioning how is he going to get used in prison? Questioning all stuff in life. And he, he reached kind of a low point in his life. And he said he was sitting there praying and he was just saying, why, why, why? You know, as we oftentimes do. And he says, and God responded to, to him with, with, this, um, with this verse. Or not verse, with this statement. Essentially, I don't remember exactly what it was, but paraphrased. I hear you. Uh, that was enough. To understand is to know that God has not left you alone. That you're not going through these circumstances alone. That He hears you. And if we know that He hears us when we share our heart with Him, then He'll share His heart with us. And I guarantee you that His heart is one full of peace, not stress, not anxiety. His heart is one of peace. And it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. He goes on and he even kind of as a microcosm of what he just talked about. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. He says, get your mind set on things above where Christ is, as Colossians 3, 1 through 3 talk about. He says, I'm not talking about things of excellence, like, oh man, hey, uh, my football team, my favorite football team just won the Super Bowl. That's an excellent thing. Man, that's not what he's talking about. Oh, oh um, honorable things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some things that are honorable of this world. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about anything and everything that is heaven-oriented. 
He's not talking about honorable things of this earth. He's not talking about, you know, excellent or pure or true or lovely things of this earth. Man, my wife is a pretty lovely lady. But it ain't talking about me setting my mind and thinking about my wife. I can thank God for my wife. But who's the derivative of where I'm, where my mind is? Who's the directive? God, not my wife. You see, you got to set your mind on things above. You got to think about things above. And here's the kicker. Because a lot of people think that God's with them always. No matter what. He's always with us. Right? And, and to a degree, there's some truth to that. But let me just tell you. God, He functions among His people very similarly to how He did amongst the Jews. Okay? And, and I know that a lot of people are like, wait a second, the Christ. Christ is in me and I in Him and all that. Here's one of those issues that I want to expound upon. Because he's about to say something real quick. And I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by it. He says this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Remember who he's talking about. He's talking about the church of Philippi, his beloved. He talks about it at the very beginning where he says it. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. He's talking to believers. Okay, People who are in Christ. People who have been saved, who have been redeemed. He says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Bold statement that Paul makes there. Practice these things. He says, do them, and the God of peace will be with you. The negative inference is is that if you don't do those things, then the God of peace won't be with you. And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, I I talked about this one a couple chapters ago with Joshua and Achan. You have Joshua, who was a man of God. God was with him, and he had given the promise to Israel that if if they were doing what they were supposed to do, that... He would be with them. And if they were to go out into battle, they would be victorious every single time. Ten times out of ten. A hundred times out of a hundred. If you're doing what you're supposed to, I will be with you and you will be victorious no matter where you go and what you do. In accordance with this word. But if you aren't, then I will stay back. And you will go forward into battle and you will lose. And so God is still there. He's still watching them. But he wasn't with them. Meaning he wasn't orchestrating the things in their favor. Notice what Romans 8 says. People think that this is just an unconditional statement for anyone who's in Christ. He says all things work together for good for those who do what? Two things. Who love him and who are walking in the purpose that God has given them to walk in. If you choose to love something else more than God. And you choose to walk in a purpose that's not the purpose that God's given to you. There's no guarantee all things are going to work out together for you, for your good. Okay? You got to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Because in Joshua, he learned 30 people of Israel died. And he comes back and he's like, what in the world? What's going on? Why did we lose? God, you said we'd have victory. And God tells him, uh, you got a man among you who's got some idols in his tent. So they draw straws and they cast lots and they eventually they found it. That was Achan. Achan confessed to it and God says, now you need to go purge Israel from that uh, mixture. He needs to be killed. Then I'll be with you again. So one man caused the people to lose in battle. You see, 
Even in first or second John one nine it says everyone who goes on ahead of the teaching of Christ does not have God. Does that mean that they're not saved? Well, it could be. Or it could also mean that they went on ahead and they said, I can figure this out on my own. I can do it my own way. And God says, okay, then go. Go figure it out. I'm still watching you. But go figure it out. And when you realize that that's not going to work out, you'll come running back to me. So it could mean that. Same way as he says in 1 John chapter 2, when he talks about do not love the world and things in the world for the... For the one who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He doesn't say that he's not of Christ. He doesn't say he's not in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about you can be an infant in Christ and still of the flesh. He says, for all, I'm sorry, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he goes on, he said, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, part of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this is simply a classic case of, if you are willing to set your minds on the things where they need to be set on, if you're willing to practice and to, um, to receive and practice the things that you've seen through Paul, essentially who is imitating Christ, then God, then the God of peace will be with you. And He will work all things out for your good. There's all kinds of things that we could go in depth on and probably things that I, I might even need to go in depth on to give you a clear picture of it. But we're just going to leave it at that. And I'm hoping that you guys are going to take that and understanding that while, yes, you can be in Christ, if you choose to do your own thing and you choose to not be faithful to the standard that God has commissioned us, God will allow you to kind of wander off a bit. And while He's still watching you, Okay? He's still there in that sense. He's not going to be working things together for good because he will work it for good as a promise to those who love him as he ought to be loved and who walk in the purpose that they ought to walk in. You go outside those two things. Faithful obedience, a loving of God and a faithful obedience Excuse me, to his word. There's no guarantee that all things are going to work together for good. Okay? So hopefully you take it and study that a little bit more. He goes on, um, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Meaning that, as we talked about before, was in chapter 2 where he says that Epaphroditus was risking his life to complete what was lacking in their service to me. It wasn't because they didn't want to or they were ignoring Paul. They just weren't able to. And he goes on here, he says, um, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. He says, I'm not in need right now. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And I love this passage, even though it gets misconstrued oftentimes where people think that um, luxury and abundance and self-indulgence is what Paul's talking about here in abounding. If you study the life of Paul, you're going to know that Paul in no way would have ever lived like that. Paul would have not lived in a life of luxury because he condemned it. He goes on, he says, For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So what is he talking about? I'm I'm just going to put it like this. Paul knew how to find contentment When his pantry was full of food and when his pantry was empty of it. Paul knew 
how to be content when he had four walls and a roof over his head and when he didn't. Paul knew how to be content when he had something to drink in excess in the sense that he had a full, you know, uh, pouch of water, whatever they would have carried back in the day, a full jar of water for his journey. And he didn't have to worry about where his next drink was coming from. He didn't have to worry about where his next meal was coming from. He actually had maybe a whole day's rations there. He didn't have to worry about it. He was content in that. Study the life of Paul. Please don't make Paul say something here that he didn't even live out in his own life. When he had his needs met and he wasn't having to be concerned about where his next meal was coming from, he was content. And in the same way, even when he didn't know where his next meal was coming from, he was content. Because he trusted and he knew that God would take care of him if he sought his kingdom first and his righteousness. He said, he knew that everything I need to be sustained, to fulfill the journey and the mission that God has put me on, will be given to me. This is actually the the true definition of the word prosper in the New Testament. You have two different Greek words that are used for prosper. And one is a Greek word that essentially means an excess and self-indulgence and it's always condemned. In Scripture, you when that word is used, it is a condemnatory thing in Scripture, and God says you need to repent. Like in Revelation chapter three, He says, "Don't you? You are rich. You've prospered." And he says, uh, "You've forgotten about me." But then there's another Greek word that's used, in which it means essentially you're given the goods or the means on a mission to complete that mission. It's like a knapsack. All right, so in the olden days, a lot of times people were going on a journey. They would take a long stick and they would type, have this knapsack and they would lay it out open. And they would put in there the things that they needed in order to make it to where their destination was. And then they would wrap that up, tie it up, and put it on the stick. And then they'd carry it on the shoulder. And they'd walk. And when they needed to stop, they'd take out something and they would eat it. They would take what they needed for that journey. And that's what it means to be prospered. In a good sense, in a way that the scriptures actually uphold in a good way, is that God will prosper us in order to accomplish the mission, not for self-indulgence, because that was completely against the gospel, and it's completely against the notion of the government of the cross that's supposed to be on our shoulder, as I talked about in the previous chapter. He says, I know how to have my needs met and be content in it, and I know that when my needs are not met, This is why he talks about in verse 11, the context of everything. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Need is the concept, whether he's in need or he's not. He goes on, he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my, check this out, Needs once and again. You see the context? Paul's not talking about self-indulgence. James 5 talks about, Come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. For the things that you stored up in this life of self-indulgence and fattening your hearts in the day of slaughter. He says those are going to be evidence against you because it doesn't reflect Jesus Christ. The construct of this entire passage and the context of it is Paul is stating whether I have my needs met or I don't. I know how to find contentment. And I can rejoice in those. 
He goes on, he says, not that I seek the gift, I seek the fruit that increases to your account. He's still thinking of them. That's why he talks about in Luke 12, 34, where he says, um, you know, well, 32 through 34, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves money bags in the heavens that do not grow old, where thieves don't break in and steal, moths don't um, bring about, rust doesn't destroy it, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul's treasure was in heaven, therefore he didn't need treasures on earth. And he was still concerned about them because he says, look, you're investing in your, in your heavenly treasure by giving to me. And I praise God for that. I have received full payment and more I well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and a pleasing to God. And my God will supply every, here's that word again, need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever and amen. So again, we have three times in just about eight verses that says the word need. You want to know the context of the passage, that's it. It's when your needs aren't met and when they are. And finding contentment in either of those instances. And I love what he says here. And Paul says, look, you're giving and I know it's a sacrificial gift. It's like what he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And, and these are Corinthians, right? I mean, the Corinthians, they had a lot of stuff wrong. But here's something that they got right. Um, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't even the Corinthians. It was the Macedonians. It says, we want you to know in chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction. I want you to listen to this terminology. In a severe test of affliction, not just a test of affliction, but a severe one, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. He says... These guys were extremely poor and in an extreme case of affliction, whatever that might be. And they begged us to, to give to the relief of the saints and to do it abundantly. And today we got so much stuff today in America where it's like, well, if I get, you know, my bills paid and I get this vacation paid for and I get, you know, our luxury car paid for and I get this paid for, then maybe I'll give into the relief and I'll partner with somebody in the gospel's sake and maybe we'll give then. But only if we have something left over. Man, we've lost the concept of what it means to have the first fruits. There's an Old Testament teaching, however, it corresponds in a spiritual sense today. The first fruits where you give irregardless of what expenses you think you might have. It's your first fruits. You give first to the Lord. I don't care if it's an extreme test of affliction. I don't care if you are in extreme poverty. You give. And by withholding that giving and giving in that manner on a consistent way. Because if the first fruits was a consistent thing. It wasn't just a once so often thing. It wasn't just you got a $4,000 stimulus check. And you say, okay, we'll give $500 and then we'll keep $3,500 for ourselves once and done. It was a consistent thing that they gave. And as Malachi 3, Malachi 3 and 4 talk about. Where he says that when the work of God is not being done because the people of God are not giving as they ought to. He says, then I'm going to withhold the reins and you're going to dry up. And you'll actually, I'll let the devourer have his way with you. 
when the people of God are not giving as they ought to for the work of the Lord. He says, I'll I'll let you dry up. I'm not going to be with that. Those tithes and contributions, those things that are supposed to be given so that my temple, which is the church of Jesus Christ, can have the means to accomplish the vision that I've given to them and the means that I've given to them to testify to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of God. When the people of God do not give in the way that they ought, he says, then you're going to dry up and I'm going to let the devourer have his way with you. That's how much God is concerned about us giving as we ought to. And he says, in 2 Corinthians 8, in correspondence to the church of Philippi, he says, look, I know that it costs you as a sacrificial gift. But I know that my God will supply every single one of your needs, even though you gave in such a way where it puts you in need. I know that he'll take care of you. Because you're not just seeking your own glory, you're seeking his glory. And you're trying to aid me in the purpose of the gospel, to spread the gospel message and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I know that you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, so he will add everything to you that you need to sustain the bios life. That takes faith. It takes faith to obey, it takes faith to live it out. And just as he says, I've quoted it several times in the last few chapters, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, when he says, that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Christian, if you are, are if you got your pantry full right now, praise God. If you've got four walls and a roof, praise God. I don't care if it's leaking, I don't care if it's drafty, praise God. And if you don't, if say you're in need, then praise Him anyways. Find contentment in that because God will uphold you with His mighty hand. He will supply that need in His time and in His way. And oftentimes it's those moments that we see faith in action. It's when we need Him that faith is actually proven. He goes on and he finishes out this letter. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, which is the Greek word okia, means a dwelling place or inmates of a house, um, or could also mean family. But I would be more inclined to think that these are people who are Caesar's slaves. They are not like Caesar's wife and children. They were believers in Jesus Christ. This seems more fitting, given the fact that Paul died at the hand of Caesar um, later on. <clears throat> Albeit it was a different Caesar, still, there's no... Um, historical evidence anywhere that any Caesar really gave his life to Jesus Christ. So I would find it a difficult thing to believe that this is referencing Caesar's family as being Christians. More so, this is probably referencing the slaves that were in Caesar's household, that were living in the dwelling place of Caesar's palace. These Christians, which was a common thing to have slaves who were Christians and having to hide it from their masters so as to not be killed. That... It's the slaves in Caesar's household that are greeting them. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with your spirit. I have enjoyed thoroughly going through the book of Philippians with you guys. There's been a lot of things that are passionate topics for me um, to be able to go through. And so it's been a very confirming, edifying, and confidence-boosting thing to me. I encourage you guys to study. If there's things in it that you know we talked about that you're like, I'm not so sure about that, study it out. 
So if you have questions, feel free. I'd love to answer your questions. I'd love to hear your thoughts and your comments on it. We can humbly go through that together and be sharpened as iron sharpens iron. Uh, so one man sharpens another. Um, we can humbly go through that together. And I would love to, because I know that unless I'm taking two hours on each podcast, I don't have the time to be able to go through and expound upon every little point. And some of them that we've talked about in the book of Philippians have been pretty profound and pretty, um, you could even say controversial. And so if you have questions, let's talk about. Email me. Um, you can find me on Facebook. And, and you know I put all these on our Facebook page at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. I put all these sermons up there. So you can listen to them on there. You can go on there and go comment on there. We'll go talk about it. Um, so find ways to, and you can even do it on Podbean. Go to Podbean and you can go find us on there. I don't know how you're listening to these, but you can comment on there. So um, I'd love to talk about it with you. And so my whole thing is I never want you to just blindly receive something just because it's what you've always believed or even just because I said it. Just because I taught it and it seemed to make some sense. Go deeper in the word. Go study it. Let the Spirit unveil things to you that you've never known. Secret and hidden things, as Jeremiah 33.3 says, that you have not known. And so you all be blessed and uh, pray that God's grace will be with your spirit as Paul prayed, as you are faithful to obey his word, faithful to love him as he ought to be loved, and let his peace be with you as you think on and practice the things that we've seen in Paul and by extension and more importantly the things that we've seen in Christ. And so, y'all be blessed.